Well, imagine with me for just a moment that you're one of Jesus' disciples. And you've watched Jesus do some pretty uh, cool things, some pretty incredible things. You have seen him heal cripple people. Uh, You have uh, seen him cast out demons. You even saw him breathe life into a dead guy. You've not only watched him walk on water, you have watched him command the storm clouds with his voice to go away. You have seen him bring peace to chaos. You have watched his love melt the unlovable uh, heart. And on this particular day, you are with Jesus. You're all alone. The crowds are nowhere to be seen, and it's just you and Jesus. And you have the opportunity this morning to ask Jesus anything, to ask him anything about anything. Here he is. You can ask him to teach you something. And so what is it that you're going to ask Jesus to teach you that day? Maybe you would be like, Lord, uh, where should I invest my money, right? The stock market, uh, who knows what's going on? Where should I uh, put my money? Uh, Jesus, help me to be a better spouse. Help me to be a a better father. Or or Lord, uh, show me again in light of this series on love. Show me what it means uh, and how to love the unlovable. Now, this uh, is not a make-believe situation. This is not a, uh, something that did not happen. It actually occurred in the Gospel of Luke, and the disciples were with Jesus privately, and they were asking him to teach them something. And of all the amazing things they could have asked Jesus to teach them, only one thing is ever recorded. They said in Luke chapter 11, verse 1, Lord, teach us to pray. So this morning, I'm going to ask you to turn to actually Matthew chapter 6 as we kick off a brand new series this morning, as you saw in the video, called Red Letter Prayers. And we're going to spend our summer months uh, studying and looking more closely at the prayers of Jesus as they're recorded in the gospel. We call them the red letter prayers because in some of our Bibles, especially some of our older translations, the words of Jesus were actually printed in red. Now, the thing that you have to know is that the red letters are no more inspired than the black letters, that all of the Bible is equally inspired, but the words of Jesus give us a glimpse into the heart of Jesus. And so this morning, as we, uh, we're going to look in Matthew chapter 6, we're going to start out in the Lord's Prayer, the granddaddy of all the prayers. You know, back in Luke chapter 11, the the disciples had witnessed Jesus do some, some pretty incredible, some pretty amazing things. But evidently what stood out to them, that they desired to replicate in their own lives was the way that Jesus prayed. Now back then, it wasn't unusual for the rabbis to actually compose prayers. And they would write these prayers down and then their disciples or their followers would take these prayers and they would recite them over and over But the disciples, having witnessed Jesus' prayer life up close and personal, knew that prayer was more than just the reciting of words. And so they asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. I came across a strange little verse in my study this week in Revelation chapter 5, verse 8. And it says that there is actually a golden bowl in heaven that is full of the saints of the prayer, or excuse me, the prayers of the saints. And this indicates, for some reason, somehow, that God is listening to our prayers and that he is storing up our prayers. Now, I don't know why he's storing up our prayers, but I figured that it would be good, since he's storing them, to fill that bowl right up to the brim. Amen? But here's the problem. The problem is that I feel totally unqualified to stand up here and to teach you about prayer. 
In fact, chances are you feel the same way. A recent study by uh, the Pew Research Group shows us that only 2% of those that responded, that means 98% of the people that responded to their study on prayer uh, said that they were not very satisfied with their prayer life. And that was the disciples, evidently. They weren't satisfied either. And so their prayer is our prayer this morning. Lord, teach us to pray. And so we're going to look at this beautiful prayer, the Lord's Prayer. Maybe we should have saved it uh, for last as the grand finale, but we wanted to start out with a bang this morning. And so we're going to look at this very familiar passage in Matthew uh, chapter 6, and uh, we're going to start in verse 5. And so read with me. It said, uh, Jesus said, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now there have been thousands of definitions of prayer, uh, thousands of clever quotes to describe prayer, and many of them are so good. But one of my favorite, one of our favorite, comes from one of our favorite authors that we quote often, Paul Tripp, the author of New Morning Mercies, which many of you use as a devotional. Listen to what he says. He says, prayer is, in itself, a recognition that something exists in the world that is greater and more glorious than you. Prayer is meant to remind you that your little world, filled with your little plans, is not ultimate. Man, that smacked me right in the face this week as I, as I read it. Like, your little world, filled with your little plans, is not ultimate. I, I've said this before. I'm a big fan of me. And left to myself, I think that I have things pretty well figured out. I think I'm a pretty big deal because I've got life all figured out. But you know what happens when I think my plans are best and I uh, start to build my own little kingdom? What happens is that my prayer life begins to fizzle because I think that I've got it all figured out and that I don't need anybody's help. But when I pray, prayer reminds me that God is so much more glorious than I am, that my little world filled with my little plans is not ultimate. And that is exactly why what Jesus reminds us when he gives us this model prayer. Now you're probably familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. This prayer is part of uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' inaugural sermon, the best sermon ever preached. It covers, it's covered in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And Jesus is spending his time uh, teaching on topics of the day, things that would have interested them, things that they were uh, living with and dealing with, things that we 2,000 years later are living and dealing with. And for some reason, right in the middle of this sermon, he stops and addresses the issue of, of prayer. Now before we take a deeper dive into the actual words of this prayer, I want to look back and start at verse 5. It says, and when you pray. Let's look at that word when for just a minute. When you pray. See, for the Jews, there was a set time that they would have prayed each and every day. 
It was like clockwork. Uh, it was a certain time. They might grab their prayer mat. They might go to the temple, and, or they would go wherever they were. They would stop, and they would pray. Would pray. You may remember the narrative from Daniel and the lion's den, the story that you probably were told uh, growing up as a child. And that's what got Daniel in pro uh, trouble, that his problem was that he was so uh, religious about praying. Three times a day, he would get out his prayer mat. He would open the windows. He would face the east where the temple was. Because he was in exile and he would face the east where the uh, Holy Spirit dwelled in the temple and the Holy of Holies and he would pray. And so the Jews uh, were very disciplined about their prayers. Now, some would pray discreetly and others would uh, pray in a way that drew attention to others. Uh, they would stand on the steps of, of the temple and they would pray these prayers with these great big words to impress everybody, to make them sound so theologically uh, profound and to, to make them, everybody uh, aware of the fact of how close a relationship they had with God the Father and their prayers were uh, filled with pious words and all the wrong motives. And that was a very real issue in Jesus' day. Now, to be honest, this morning, contextually, I don't know that that's our biggest problem. I don't know that's where we struggle with prayer today. Never had anybody uh, storm the stage and grab the microphone and demand to pray. It just doesn't happen very often. But I think the issue that we do struggle with is that discipline and the desire to pray. Uh, every winter at the beginning of the year when we kick off the new year and we have prayer week, we always uh, spend two weeks looking at different passages of the Bible on prayer. And you've heard this before, that our problem in this day and age, in this church, in my life, I struggle with prayerlessness. Here's the good news this morning. It's God's children. We're allowed to pray whenever we want. We don't have to wait for a set time. We don't have to wait for uh, a bell to ring. We can pray whenever we want, and we can pray for whatever we want. Because Jesus didn't give us this prayer so that we could mindlessly recite the words. He gave us this prayer so we would have a model or a grid through which to run our prayers. Now there have been thousands upon thousands of messages that have been taught on this subject of prayer. Um, but there are two things, as we look at it this morning specifically, we could go in so many different directions. But we want to look at two specific things, the first half of the prayer and the second half of the prayer, to see two things that we should focus on as we freely approach God's throne of grace. And the first one is this. When we approach God's throne of grace, we should pray with awe. Pray with awe. Look back at the end of verse 8. It says, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. See, what this should do, that the father knows what we need before we even ask him, is it should alleviate any pressure that we have on what to bring to God, whether the matters are big, whether they are small. Listen, God is omniscient. That means that he knows everything. He knows it before we even ask it. And so in this case, because he knows everything, we can let it all out. You can't keep any secrets from God. And so we tell him everything that's on our heart, big and small, good and bad, because he stands ready to pour grace over us. Now, as a quick side note, whenever we teach this, we often hear this question. I've heard it before from people in this room. If he already knows, then why should I even bother to pray? And, and that's a good question. In fact, we've spent entire sermons uh, focused on that before. If he already knows, why should I even pray? And, and let me give you a short answer so you don't get hung up here on this, on this question. The reason that we pray, even though God already knows, is because he has invited us to do so. 
And for some reason, God in his sovereignty has chosen to respond to our desperate and dependent prayers. Listen, God doesn't need the information that we give him, but he encourages us to give it to him anyway. And while he longs to come to our aid, he often waits until we actually ask him specifically. The bigger point here, though, is that God already knows your heart. He knows the pain. He knows the anxiety. He knows the hurt and the questions that you carry. And he already knows the answer. And so this is the first stop in praying with awe, that he already knows everything. And so that should cause us to come to him as the omniscient God, knowing everything, and we fall before him in awe. Now the second stop in praying with awe is the magnificent truth that God is our Father and resides in heaven. In the old KJV, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now, if you have prayed the Lord's Prayer a few times in your life, it may have become a little mundane to you. You know, a lot of times this prayer is recited at sporting events as a way to unify a team. I've shared this illustration before. You know that I, uh, many of you know that I officiate high school football on Friday nights, and we work with a crew. There's five guys. We work with the same guys all the time. Uh, but several years ago, probably six or seven years ago, I actually subbed in for a crew that was missing a guy that night. And, um, man, these guys were profane. They, they were obscene. They were dirty. Uh, they were telling the raunchiest of jokes uh, before the game started. And as that clock uh, countdown on the clock and the scoreboard uh, got down to two minutes, the game was about to start in two minutes, suddenly this group of heathens uh, gathered around at midfield, and they all grabbed hands together. And so there I am holding hands with these guys and, and looking at them in awe, and they start reciting the Lord's Prayer. No idea what any of the words meant. I doubt that any of them were actually, in fact, Christians. But the fact of the matter is that they recited this prayer as a way to unify them. But listen this morning, for, for Christians, for the Christ follower, the beginning of this prayer shifts our focus from ourselves to the one true living God who created the heavens and the earth. And when we pray, our minds should pause and give awe and attention to the God of the universe who is in complete control of every single event in human history, who has supreme authority, who has never needed an inkling of counsel from anyone else, who is perfect and powerful in all his ways. This is the God that we are praying to. We are praying to the God that hung the stars in the sky and calls them by name. The God that separated the land from the water and created every living creature that has ever walked on this planet. This is who we get to call Father. He's the one who rescued us. He's the one who redeemed us. He's the one who knows every care, every tear, every fear that we carry in our hearts. Church, this is our Heavenly Father. He's perfectly benevolent, perfectly kind, perfectly loving, and perfectly redemptive. He is our Father. That's who we pray to, church. Now, when we compare God to our earthly fathers, God the Father to our earthly fathers... The fact of the matter is in the original language, Jesus was actually speaking in the language, uh, the Aramaic language. And so in the Aramaic language, uh, our father would translate as Abba. Now we have kind of uh, painfully taken this word and tried to translate it into the English word of daddy. And in some ways there is a correlation there. There's at least the intimacy that comes. The Jews uh, didn't like using uh, the word Abba as daddy because it, it, it just felt irreverent to them. But in many ways, there is this intimacy. It refers to this intimacy that we have with our Father. 
Now, I know that some of you, your dads won Dad of the Decade Award when you were growing up, right? Uh, just the, the greatest dad ever. Uh, I'm also painfully aware that some of you, your dad won the Missing Man Award. But listen, the relationship of your earthly father with your earthly father, good or bad, is barely a glimpse of who your heavenly father is. Yes, there is some intimacy uh, from the fact that God is father, but he's so much more. He's the source of every good gift. He is uh, where our, our true identity comes from. He is where our identity is formed. He's the father of all fathers, and he's ready and willing to heal, to hear our prayers, to heal our brokenness, and to guide us to his throne, which Jesus reminds us here is not on this earth, but is in heaven. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This week during our sermon prep, one of our other pastors told the story of being in a pretty intense conversation with one of his children, who in the course of the conversation called him bro. And uh, I think it was actually more of brah. He called him brah. And so it was a hilarious story of our pastor recounting how in no uncertain terms he made it clear that he was not bro or brah, he was actually dad or father. And he said that conversation changed the entire tone. It changed the entire direction of the conversation from that point forward. Listen, it's the same way with God when we hallow his name. Listen, it reorients our prayers. It reminds us of who we are talking to. In the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, the Hebrew word for God was Yahweh. Now, to be honest, uh, scholars today don't completely agree on how the name Yahweh was actually pronounced back then because they believed that, excuse me, even the word itself was so holy that they removed the vowels from the, from the word and only pronounced the consonances. When the scribes were copying scripture and they would come to the word Yahweh, they would write it out and then they would break their quill or their pen and throw it away out of reverence so that pen could never be used again because the word was so holy that they had to honor it. And so Jesus models for us what it means to begin our prayers with this type of honor and respect. And it is good to remind God that he is holy and righteous and just and generous, not because we want something in return, that would be for wrong motives that Jesus was already talking about, but out of recognition that he is all of these things and we are none of them. And so we pray with awe. And then finally, as we pray with awe, look at verse 10. It says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the last piece of awe that we see here. That we, when we live in awe of an all-knowing Father who is in heaven and whose very name is holy, then we can confidently express the words of verse 10, your kingdom come. Listen, the events of this week on the news remind us that we are in a pretty broken world. We have the continued war in Ukraine. We have the terrible tragedy that took place in uh, Buffalo this week. We have that uh, ugly conversation, that debate that's uh, raging about when life begins and how it's gotten ugly and so much vitriol involved in it. And all of this is a reminder that we live in a very broken world. We live in a world that's filled with injustice and disorder and disrepair. It's a world that desperately needs to be redeemed by Jesus Christ. A world that doesn't even realize that if not for the grace of God, it would have already fallen completely apart. That's our kingdom. It's this kingdom. It's what humans have made. 
But in this red letter prayer, Jesus reminds us that this mess, these headlines that we read, this is not God's kingdom. God's kingdom is full of order and rest and hope and joy all overflowing out of the presence of God. Your kingdom come is a recognition that we do not belong to this world. In a sense, it's a prayer of detachment. It's what the Apostle Paul said, that our, our world is not here, that our citizenship is not here on earth. Our citizenship is in heaven. And so we're asking for the things of heaven to become visible to us. That they would come to bear on our hearts and on our lives that the things that God loves and the things that God values would happen right here in our hearts and our lives. Your kingdom come, your will be done. You know, I wonder if people would be so quick to mouth the words of this prayer if they really knew what they were saying. Like this is a dangerous part of the prayer to pray. Uh, when we say these things, in essence, we're giving God permission to tear down our own little kingdom and to begin establishing his kingdom right here in our very lives. Because when you pray with awe to such a degree that you can say with conviction, your kingdom come, your will be done, listen, things are going to change. Your life will be different when you pray this prayer. God may ask you to actually move to uh, serve in a different place. He may ask you, uh, ask you to uh, make a career change, to change uh, the place that you work so that you can uh, better serve him. The, the Lord might ask you to, uh, uh, to take on a, a greater level of leadership within the church. Maybe you will become convicted to change the very way in which you lead your family. Listen, this is a hard prayer. It is a dangerous prayer to pray. And so maybe you're thinking, well, who in the world would ever pray that prayer? Jesus. Jesus is the one that, that prayed that prayer. These were his words right before he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, he was in the garden. He knew he was about to be arrested. He knew about the illegal trial that was coming his way. He knew what it meant to, to go onto the cross to pay for the sins of the world. And he did not want to do that. And so he begged with God. He pleaded with God. It says that he, he pleaded so, he, there was so much stress in his physical body that he literally sweated drops of blood. But a friend recently told me that he uh, knew the answer to his prayer because he had such peace about it. And I said, well, man, peace in your prayer is not always an indication uh, that you're doing the right thing because Jesus, he, he had no peace. He begged God. It says in Matthew chapter 26, it says, My Father, if it at all possible, let this cup pass from me. He did not want to endure the agony of the cross, and he begged God for another way. But his cries ended in surrender. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. See, Jesus didn't teach us to pray a certain way and then not live it out as a hypocrite would. He knew the pain and the suffering that was going to come. He knew the sacrifice that it was going to take to pay for the sins of the world. He knew that he was going to be humiliated. He knew that he was going to be falsely accused. He knew that his family was going to stand there and cringe as he was crucified. And yet he gave life to the words, your kingdom come, your will be done. And so church, today let's commit to pray in awe of God's name and awe of his kingdom, trusting our lives, our very lives, to his goodwill. That takes us to the second part of the Lord's Prayer, 
And it's here that we see that we should pray dependently. Pray dependently. Now, as part of our prayer week each year, we have talked about dependent prayer. In fact, uh, about this time last year, we taught through a short series called At Our Core, our three core values. And our three core values uh, that we stand on are the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture, uh, of, growing, uh, of living and growing uh, community, relational community. And then finally, we live in dependent prayer. And this right here is where the American dream and biblical Christianity crash headfirst into each other. Because one says, uh, you can fill in the blank, that God helps those who helps, God helps those who help themselves. And the other says that, God, I can do it, my, I can't do it myself. Uh, one says, I am dependent on no one, I need uh, no one's help for anyone, anything. And the other one says, in him I live and move and have my being. Now listen, I'm not saying that you can't be a godly person and an American at the same time. But what I am saying is that the very things that we value the most as citizens of this country stand in stark contrast to what Jesus is modeling here in the Lord's Prayer. And what Jesus is modeling is dependency on the Father. I was recently trying to encourage the parents of two young children, both of whom are still in diapers. Um, I, I tell this story often. My assistant, Maggie Hills, and her husband, uh, Evan, uh, Pastor Brad, and I share her as an assistant. And uh, she has two little people. And they depend on her for everything. Like, life is exhausting, right? They depend on her to change their diapers and, and, and to feed them, to bathe them, and to once a week wrestle them in the car and try to get them to church on time. And sun up to sundown is controlled chaos where most of the time it's not even controlled. It just sounds like pure chaos. And listen, if this describes your life where you're at at this point in uh, life, hang in there. There is light at the end of the tunnel. I can give testimony to that as a dad of a 19 and 22 year old. And listen, I, I can look back and I can remember all of the milestones of independence, right? You can remember them too when, when you changed that very last diaper and, and when they started feeding themselves. And eventually they'll start dressing themselves. Now sometimes that means in the middle of the summer they're going to wear their winter boots and their bicycle helmet to church. But God bless them because they dress themselves, Amen. And eventually your youngest will finally get their driver's license and they will have achieved near total independence. And that is the greatest feeling as a dad when your uh, youngest drives themselves to practice for the very first time. Now, if you're a dad, that's true. If you're a mom, you get in the car and you follow them, right? And these kids get their driver's license. They think they have finally reached independence, but as a parent, you know that that amount of independence is really just an illusion, especially when they get their first college tuition bill, and then suddenly they are de dependent again. And in the same way, any independence in our relationship with God is also an illusion. There is no one that is independent of God. There is no one uh, that lives outside of the world in which he created. He is the giver of manna in the wilderness. He's the vine. He's the author. He's the creator. And we're not. Which puts us in a place of need. You know, the temptation here in our culture is that uh, for those with any amount of health or wealth or intelligence is to think that we somehow got here on our own. Which is exactly why Jesus gave us this red letter prayer. So that we can understand that we are so much more needy than we realize. 
Look back at verse 11 with me. Give us this day our daily bread. We're going to see three things. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Three things that we're all in desperate need of. And here's what's so unique about the things on this list. That every single person shares the need for every single item on this list. Whether you realize it or not, you are completely dependent on your Father for these things. Let's start with our daily bread. This refers to both our physical and our spiritual nourishment. As we learned last week, that the way that we get spiritual nourishment is to be connected to the vine, to Jesus. And so we wake up every morning with a prayer of dependence that says, God, apart from you this morning, I can do nothing. It's to realize that we have to abide in him as our only real source of spiritual nourishment. And spiritual nourishment and the fruit that it produces, uh, it will always produce fruit. And so if you're not producing fruit, you're not being spiritually nourished. But when you are producing fruit, it is evidence of a life that is totally dependent on Jesus. The same is true when it comes to our physical health. Just this last week, I visited a friend's dad in the hospital who's dying from a, a brain tumor. And three weeks ago, four weeks ago, there wasn't a single sign that anything was wrong. And, and so whether it's the fact that we have good health or that we can put food on the table, we are totally dependent on God because all of this can be taken away at a moment's notice. Just ask Job in the Old Testament. And we really don't have a, a very clear reason as to why Job was stricken as he was. I, I'll never know why my friend's dad fell so ill so quickly. And when hard times do hit in our lives, we often don't get the answers as to why. But what we do get is a renewed sense that we are a desperately needy people in need of physical and spiritual sustenance. And so we pray, give us this day our daily bread. Then Jesus reminds us to pray for forgiveness. Now, there's a wretched part of me that hates the fact that God has connected my forgiveness from him to the forgiveness that I extend to others. In fact, he's so adamant about this that he circles back around at the end of his prayer and hits this once again just in case it wasn't clear the first time. Now, let me read verse 14 and 15 that we didn't read earlier. Jesus said, For if you forgive others their trespasses... Your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Like, is that clear enough? In our original draft of this message, we actually had about another page and a half of commentary. But the fact of the matter is I don't think that we need to add very much commentary here. That when we pray, we must never lose sight of the depth of forgiveness that Christ has already extended to us. And so for, every, uh, for all the envy, for all the anger, for all the lack of prayer, for all the lack of love, for the impure thoughts that have made us enemies of God, we have been forgiven. And now we must stand ready to pray the next part of the prayer as we also have forgiven our debtors. And so we pray for forgiveness. This final part of the red letter prayer is so critical. Lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Now listen, this is not suggesting that God sometimes tempts us and takes us close to, tempt, uh, uh, to evil or to temptation, to sin, uh, and then on this day that we're asking that he not do that. 
Not at all. God never takes our hand. He never leads us really close to sin to see what we would do that would be contrary to his holy nature. When we pray, lead us not into temptation, we're actually asking God that when we are headed towards sin, that he would grab our hands and pull us back from evil. We're acknowledging that we are weak. And we're asking him uh, for his protection in these situations where we're most likely to fall. I think it's Hebrews chapter 12 that talks about our besetting sin. A besetting sin is that temptation to which you are the most vulnerable. God, today, protect me from that. And so that's the model that Jesus gives us this morning in this prayer. Feed us, forgive us, and protect us. Things of which we are totally dependent on him. Feed us, forgive us protect us. Now I'm going to check to see if you're still awake. So if you're still awake, say that with me. Feed us, forgive us, protect us. Say it again. Feed us, forgive us, and protect us. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, strangely enough, that last sentence actually was not originally part of Jesus, Lord, the Lord's prayer that Jesus gives us. In fact, if it's in your Bible, it's probably in parentheses to indicate that it was a scribe later that came along that uh, found a fitting way to end this prayer, to end this prayer of dependence and to show that we are totally dependent. We pray for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, church, in closing, as we pray to God the Father, we have learned time and time again that we're actually praying through Jesus as our mediator. It says in uh, the book of Hebrews that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. What that means is that here we come carrying all of our filthy rags and we're dragging them into the very throne room of heaven uh, where only holiness can exist. And there's Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father reminding the Father that, listen, they have inherited my righteousness, that I have imputed my righteousness to them, that they're no longer coming to you as filthy rags. So let's end our time this morning with this encouragement from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. It says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Church, listen, what qualifies Jesus to be the only one upon who we are totally dependent. And what qualifies Jesus to be the one that we can pray to is this, that he was without sin. Listen, he felt the same pain. He felt the heartache and the hurt. He knows what it meant to be rejected and to be alone. He experienced the same temptations, and yet he was without sin. It's how, the, uh, how John the Baptist, the great prophet, was able to say, uh, Behold, the perfect Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so it is with confidence, with absolute confidence, that we get to approach him and his throne of grace today. And here is the best part of prayer for the believer. It's this, that you will never, ever be turned away from God's throne of grace. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Would you bow your heads with me for just a few minutes as we take a few minutes to respond in our hearts to the truths of God's word this morning.
For those of you that are in the room this morning that profess to be believers, that have declared that Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life, I'm going to ask you for just the next few seconds to think of an attribute of God and to pray that back to Him. Maybe it's His holiness. Maybe it's the fact that He is your protector, that He is your strength. He's your strong tower. He's the bread of life. He's the perfect Lamb of God. Would you put words to one of those attributes and thank Him this morning in awe of who He is? Would you confess this morning that your natural drift is not towards dependency? That your natural drift is towards independence. That you can do this on your own. Perhaps you can repent this morning of the fact that you only come to God when there's a problem in your life. That the last time you really got on your hands and knees was when your life was falling apart. Saying, God, starting today, as my all-knowing Father, I want to bring these things to you. Knowing that for some reason in your sovereignty you choose to respond to dependent prayer, would you ask God to make you more dependent on Him even starting this week? For those of you this morning that never declared that Jesus Christ is Lord, your prayer this morning is to ask Him for forgiveness. To say, when uh, God, when I uh, compare my life to the life of Jesus, I fall woefully short of your holiness. But rather than spending an eternity apart from you, God, today, I ask you for your forgiveness. Uh, in repentance, I, I, I turn and walk away from my sin starting this morning. And God, I trust the promise that because of this, I will spend an eternity with you in your presence, in your holiness. God, give me Jesus Christ's holiness even this morning. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you this morning for the words of Jesus. I thank you for these red-letter prayers. Not because uh, these words are more special than the black-letter words, but because it gives us a glimpse into the heart of Jesus, who we know was fully man, but he was fully God. And our Heavenly Father, this morning we thank you that Jesus is seated at your right hand, making intercession for us. And that I have been invited to come boldly before your throne of grace this morning. And God, it's in awe that we approach you. We approach you with our hands and our face down on the ground out of reverence to your holiness. And out of recognition that apart from Jesus we are not. God, we pray this morning that you would do some incredible things in our lives. God, I pray that you would teach us to pray that difficult prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. God, I have been praying that, this prayer, even this week. And God, it is a hard prayer to pray as we let loose of those things that we have built in our own little kingdom. But God, we ask you today for your kingdom to come, for what is invisible to become visible in our hearts and our lives. And we empower you to do that today through the work of Jesus. 
God, I'm grateful for the presence of the Holy Spirit that never leaves us as believers. And I pray today that those in this room that are living outside of a relationship with you, that God, that you would run towards them today, that you would draw them to yourself, and that God, you would make them aware, even if it's painfully aware, of their need for you today. God, we thank you for your word and for scripture. We thank you for the work of Jesus on the cross. We pray all of these things in your name, through the power of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit. We pray this this morning. Amen and amen.